0: So I'm going to ask for participation uh, right off the bat. How many of you have ever heard the term evangelical? Some people laugh. Do it again. I, wanted to, I didn't get it all the way around. <laughs> all right. Most, most. Um, some people don't like the term and never have. Uh, truth be told, there are many people in more what are called minority cultures that necessarily have never identified with evangelical because of uh, what they have perceived it to mean on multiple fronts, and so they're just Christians, other people have really loved it. Um, the reality is everybody that may claim to be an evangelical knows that right now the term is uh, in flux to say the least. Um, I have been really frustrated for probably the last handful of years how it's used uh, so exclusively in the media as a political voting block. It just feels um, dirty to me at many levels that that's the way in which it's used. And yet at the same time, in the midst of that confusion, I have found incredible moments to provide clarity for people. Uh, one of those is in the last couple years, I've had some opportunities uh, to be speaking uh, to some people about the political climate. I was invited into a campaign headquarters to speak specifically about who are and what are evangelicals. I found that a huge opportunity because it gave me an opportunity to walk into a space that's a public space and present the meaning of the word, which is essentially the gospel. If you didn't know this evangelical, evangel is the Latin word for gospel, and evangelical just means a gospel person. So regardless of what you think about the term, um, whether or not you want to reclaim it or state it or whatever, I don't necessarily care about the term. What God really cares about and what I would care about as a pastor in Redemption Church is that we are gospel people. So I had the opportunity in this campaign headquarters to talk about it, and I used um, kind of a more historical definition of it, a guy that studied history and came up with what he called a quadrilateral. His name was David Bevington. He came up with Bebbington's quadrilateral, which means four things. So here are the four things of evangelical. An evangelical is committed to the Bible as the authoritative word of God. Committed to the cross is the central event in human history. Committed to pursuing conversion. They share the gospel and present the gospel. And social action, which means they are committed to what Hebrews talks about, love and good deeds. Now, I'm sitting in this room at this moment, and when I got to conversion, I said, and evangelicals are committed to conversion, and I just sat there for a minute, and you could just watch like their skin's crawling, they're looking at me like this is everything we don't like about evangelicals, right? You're trying to force us into your mold, and I said, I know your skin's crawling at many points, and this is where people get stuck oftentimes, but truth be told, this campaign headquarters exists for conversion, and they're like, huh? And I said, you fundamentally have a vision of the state of Arizona that you want to see the map, the political map, be your color. So if you're a Republican, you want it to be red. If you're a Democrat, you believe Arizona would be better being blue. So in the end, the way you do it, the very reason I'm sitting in this room is that you want to hear about a voting base, evangelicals, who they are that you might win them to carry forth your greater vision for the world. All I believe as a Christian is that the world would be better surrendering and following the one whom my Bible says we were made by and for. And I just watched them all go, huh? Like we've never thought about it like that before. But the truth is, if you're sitting in this room, and you're like me and a Bronco fan, and you're trying to espouse the gospel of the Denver Broncos, everybody should be Bronco fans, right? Like, you share that. If you're sitting in this room, and you sell essential oils, you're saying, if you use these oils, your health will be better. Or if you're in finance, and you're selling financial packages, your family will be more secure and better, and if we would all just do this. We all have visions that if the world would just do this, and we us. Bows them, we evangelize people, if you will, based upon those. So when we think about the gospel and culture, we have to fundamentally say, regardless of terminology, that as Christians, we are gospel people, people who follow Jesus. That's what the word Christian means. So, what then is the relationship between this gospel and the culture that we live in? And here's what I want to present to you: that the church. Which this is an important definition. The church is not a building. Okay, the church is people. Okay, So when you say we're going to church, it would be better to say we're going to gather with the church. The church is people. So under that notion, the church is, by God's design, a living presentation of the gospel. The church is also the greatest promoter of the gospel. And the church is the proclaimer of the gospel. The living presentation The promoter and the proclaimer. So let's get after this. The church, the people of God, are the living presentation of the gospel. God has appointed the church to be the means through which the culture sees and experiences the gospel. So we're a show me people. Every time I've gotten up here, I think at least one point I'll refer to the fact that I'm married and I have four kids. A 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, now a 5-year-old and a 4-year-old. And what you realize as a parent is you're a show-me person all the time, meaning this. So there's these moments now where our younger kids will have these moments, and you'll lose sight of them in the house, and then all of a sudden there'll be a big yell. Dad! Mom! And you're like, what comes next? And oftentimes with me it's, Dad, I pooped! (laughs) And I'm like, what? Okay, finish. I can't. Show me! how to wipe my bottom, right? And that's what you do as a parent. You wipe your kid's tails, right? Like that's just the nature of part of what you do. So you show them, here's how you wipe your bottom. And then there's these moments where they're like, show me how to fill up my water cup. And then as they get older, they'll say things like, show me how to do my math. And that's when I go, check out, see you later, I have no clue, I'm helpless at that point. Mom, right, I start yelling at mom. But parents are show me people. Well, the reality is our world is a show me world. And God positions the church in such a way to say, you all who are saying all the time, show me what the way is. Show me what truth is, which is what the world is doing all the time, what people are doing all the time. Show me the way, the truth. Show me what real life is, that God positions the church to be the means through which the culture sees the gospel. So before we get going, I want to define gospel and culture. So John Dixon defines gospel this way, and this is a thick definition, but it's very important. He says, the gospel is the announcement, or news, which is what gospel means. The gospel is the announcement that God has revealed his kingdom and opened it up to sinners through the birth, teaching, miracles, death, and resurrection, which we're celebrating this week, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day return to overthrow evil and consummate the kingdom for eternity. So I'm not going to go into detail on this, but I want you to see that God made a world that sin came in and twisted and distorted. And God is coming to reconcile and restore his world and open up his kingdom that sinners might be invited into the way the world should have always been. Okay? The gospel. What's culture? Herman Bavinck, uh, who was a Dutch theologian and somewhat of a statesman, says culture is a set of beliefs made visible. Now, this is true in a family, it's true in an organization, it's true in a school, it's true on an athletic team, it's true in a city, it's true in a nation, that the culture is those people's beliefs made visible. So that which we see shows you what we believe. Andy Crouch takes it a step further. It's what we make of the world and how we make sense of the world. So together I'd say this, culture, so we understand it, is our beliefs being made visible in what we make of the world and how we make sense of the world. It's really important for you to realize God, God made us culture makers. So at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he makes man and women and then he says, be fruitful and multiply, rule and subdue the earth, have dominion over it. That's make culture do stuff with the things that I've made and make more of it from people to what ends up being the automobile and everything in between right we are culture makers so culture in essence is not bad it's a good thing like everything else that sin has come upon like a leech and begins to suck the life of and distort it okay really Clear image. God makes a world that's good, and everything in it, the Bible says, sin comes on like a leech to suck it of its life and to distort it. Culture's the same way. So now, put that image back up. The gospel and culture, and what I want you to see here is the church sits between gospel and culture. That's a title of a book I've always found so helpful to understand what the church is, the church between gospel and culture. So the church is the translation mechanism to which the culture, the people, we're making the culture, see the gospel. The church is there. This is why the Bible uses images and Jesus uses images like this of the church. The church is the salt of the earth. The church is the light of the world. The church is a city on a hill and the church is the body of Christ. Okay, so if you believe in Jesus, you never have the option to believe and not be a part of the church. That's what the church is, is believers. And you don't have the opportunity, you don't have the option to come in and go, I believe, but I don't want to be the salt of the earth. But I don't want to be the light of the world. But I don't want to be a city on the hill. But I don't want to be the body of Christ. The reality is you as an individual are a grain of the salt of the earth. You're a ray of light of being the light of the world. You are a building or a house in the midst of the city on a hill, and you are a member of the body of Christ. In short, so you know, is the world will know Christ through his body, which is all of those whom believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior of the universe. We are positioned between the gospel and culture. Therefore, we must take this responsibility extremely seriously and understand the admonitions what we're told to do and what we need to avoid so how in which are how in which are we going to present the gospel to this world we present the gospel as a living example to the culture through both promoting the gospel And proclaiming the gospel. This is a very important words and why I put them on the screen. is many times when we would talk about the church and culture, the church and the world, if you've grown up in the church very long, you know about this term evangelism. Which means we speak the word of God, the gospel, that God's coming to save, has come to save. We present that in the proclamation of the gospel, which is yes. Absolutely, But we're also, the New Testament says, all over the p- place. In fact, even more, which doesn't mean it's bigger or more important. But we are always promoting the gospel. Whether we like it or not, we're always promoting the gospel. So the church is the promoter of the gospel. So in order to rightfully present the gospel to culture, we are promoting the gospel in everything we do key term, in everything we do. I came to Phoenix, Arizona to play baseball at Arizona State University. I was in the baseball program for five years. In those five years, almost a meeting did not go by in which one of the coaches didn't say to us, you represent the name on the front of your jersey everywhere you go. Now, my dad also told me, you represent the name on the back of your jersey as well right? Johnson. But in those moments, they were saying to us, you represent the name on the front of your jersey everywhere you go, not just when you practice, not just when you play, but when you do academics or when you're in study hall. And we learned that one day we didn't represent the name on the front of our jersey in study hall very well, and I've I've never in my life ran more ever in my life, because we didn't represent the name on the front of our jersey. But then they'd say, when you go out on the weekend, you represent the name on the front of your jersey. And I learned that by many of my friends being in the media because they didn't represent the name on the front of their jersey. This is what God is saying to us as those who follow Jesus and believe in him, is that we display him in everything that we do. If you were not here last week and didn't hear Paul Artino's message on all of life, go listen to it. Because we represent him not just or even not primarily when we are gathered for worship or when we read our Bibles or when we pray our prayers in private. But actually we represent him most because of where we are the most in our lives, the totality of our lives. From our jobs to our recreation to how we drive in the car when we're amidst people. We represent and promote the gospel in the way we partake of food. People will come up and ask these questions of now as I try to engage my friends, we'll go out and they'll be drinking and oftentimes they drink a lot. Well, one of the things a Christian can do is say, God doesn't say it's wrong to drink a glass of wine. In fact, he says wine rejoices the heart. But what we display is this is what it's like to partake of these things, whether they be food in a not a gluttonous way or drink, maybe even alcohol in a not a drunkenness way but we know what moderation is and can enjoy it. We know how to enjoy our occupations, what we do as a job and not make them gods, but fully honor in service to our neighbor through the work that we do. Everything we do, from brushing our teeth to celebrating corporately to driving our car to eating of food to understanding what it is to be poor, to understanding what it is to be rich, to understanding what life is like in a bad marriage to a good marriage. We're always in those moments. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus when I'm in a bad marriage. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus when I've now been divorced. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus when I have nothing. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus when I have everything. Whatever it is, the way is Jesus and we're always promoting the gospel in our faithfulness to following Jesus in the midst of that situation. We're promoters of the gospel in all of life. In 24-7 majority mundane tasks we are promoters of the gospel now here's a question how do we promote the gospel when we are surrounded by a world that's trying to shape us inform us in a different direction look at this passage in Romans chapter 12 this speaks to both the things we were just saying Paul spoke of this passage last week. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now wait, this, I've said this here before, but I want you to understand how amazing this statement is. He's saying your spiritual worship is what you do in your body. Now, what do you not do in your body? Nothing, everything you do in your body. What's he saying? Present your bodies the whole of your life And as you present it to God, that's spiritual worship. That's just what we said. It's everything. Then he says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now look at that verse for a minute and understand this. The world... Which is the sinful side of culture, very important. The way in which the Bible talks about world, it talks about it in two different ways. In a totality of the world that God made, in which he loves, why he sent Jesus. And the world is a way in which to talk about the sinful realities of culture. So the world is constantly trying to conform us into its mold. Now this is really interesting. Because Romans, earlier in this book, in chapter 8, says that all of those who believe God's plan for you forever and ever has been to make you and conform you, same word, into the image of his son, Jesus. So the world's trying to conform me into its image. Christ is conforming me into his image. So when we said gospel and culture, the sinful side of culture of the world is sucking me trying to conform me to it. And Christ is, the gospel is conforming me into his image. Now, understand this. We don't have an option but to live in culture. You get that? So you can't just go, culture's bad. The world, like this is the only world we get to live in, right? So we live in it. And as people will talk about, Christians should engage culture because we're the presenters and the promoters of the gospel. The world is seeking to conform us into its mold. So as we engage the culture, always realize it's engaging you. Consciously, but most often subconsciously. You don't even realize the current it's taking you in. Therefore, we have to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. How do we renew our minds? Fundamentally, by that which is conforming us into its image the gospel the word of God the living and abiding word of God is what we're renewing our minds and in, in essence Jesus so Jesus fundamentally is there all the while we're following Jesus in the midst of culture honoring the things that are good And disposing of the things which are evil, which is not easy to determine, which is why we've got to be in the scriptures, surrounded by Jesus, so that we would be able to discern what is the will of God. Because he he said it's not that easy all the time. You've got to sit there sometimes and just go, God, what's right in this situation? If Jesus is king over the entirety of my life, what's right that you may determine the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Who defines what is good? You know that moment when they say, hey, good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God alone. Jesus determines good and acceptable and perfect. That's by which we are transformed. And this leads us to the next thing. How do we promote the gospel in a world that's hostile to it? In a world that's hostile to it. And I would say this we promote the gospel through this phrase, convicted civility. We promote the gospel through convicted civility. Rich Mao says this one of the real problems in modern life is that people who are good at being civil often lack strong convictions. Can I get an amen? And people who have strong convictions often lack civility. Can I get a louder amen? amen? We need to find a way of combining a civil outlook with a passionate intensity about our convictions. That, I love that that phrase is there. I wish exclamation points were it. Right. We have to find a way of combining civil outlook with a passionate, passionate intensity about our convictions. The real challenge is to come up with a convicted civility. Leave that slide on the screen now. I want to talk about this phrase convicted civility. Starting with convicted, that means we have convictions that cannot be compromised, okay? Passionate intensity about our convictions. Can we live in the real world with a passionate intensity about our convictions? Because some people right now would say that's the problem with our world. People are too passionate about their convictions, I would say that's not true. I would say if your convictions that you're passionate about do not enable you to be civil and collaborative, then there's a problem with your convictions. But the issue is not passionate intensity in our convictions. So what does conviction look like? Because Rich Mao is saying the real challenge is to come up with a convicted civility. Here's the bottom line conviction for those who say they follow Jesus. It's our confession. If you boil it all down, the fundamental conviction of us that the Bible gives us is the confession Jesus is Lord. Our fundamental conviction is our fundamental confession Jesus is Lord. Now, some of you that are sitting in this room have really struggled. Truth be told, everybody sitting in this room has really struggled. And when you set forth, I'm to follow Jesus as Lord and live for him as Lord, the challenge is you and I both know that we screw up and fail all the time. So as you seek to pursue Jesus as Lord, which means He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings, which means what he says we obey. It's kind of like his parents, they'll say these things like, Obey, kids, and we obey right away all the way, and with a happy heart, right? Obedience in the Bible is not optional for those who say they follow God. In fact, God even holds those accountable who say they don't acknowledge him for not obeying him, right? So obedience is a big deal. When we hear those words, that makes our skin crawl, right? Because it's like, I know how much I screw up. But here's the power of the confession that Jesus is Lord, is that it's Jesus who is Lord. Which means when we fall, right, we're seeking to follow him, we fall flat on our face because of our sin. Either because of the things we should be doing that we're not doing or the things that we are doing that we shouldn't be doing, we fall flat on our face and then we're like, oh, I screwed up. And Jesus is the one who gathers us up in that moment and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest because the Lord is one who saves. It's Jesus who's Lord. Jesus is Savior. So now when the world is watching and we're promoting the gospel and we struggle and we fall in not presenting the gospel or promoting the gospel the way we'd want it, we look at him and go, guys, I screw up all the time. Hence why I follow Jesus is Jesus is a Lord who saves. He's not an oppressive tyrant. He's a loving God. A loving father who's expressed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, to gather us out of the muck and mire, to set our feet upon a rock and to say, keep going and I'm going to give you the spirit to empower you to do such a thing. The power, that's our confession that Jesus is Lord. So in a culture that's constantly trying to silence this, we like the apostles when they were silenced, do not any longer live like this and speak for Jesus and they go, we can't but live and speak for Jesus. You determine if it's right in your sight or not, but we're gonna live for God's sight, we can't but. That's our fundamental confession, which means we stand for the word of God and what God says. In conviction, in those fundamental moments, we won't be silent, but not just won't be silent, we are seeking as the church to live into our convictions, not just to proclaim our convictions. Okay, step back for a moment and hear that. What that means, if we believe our fundamental conviction, is that we are going to represent these publicly because we believe fundamentally that the Bible is public truth. It's not private just for us in our church. Like we believe the Bible. No, the Bible's the Word of God. God made the world, it's public truth. And public truth is meant to be publicly displayed. So we live in open about our faith, right? But we don't just profess our faith, we live into our faith. There are far too many of us that are happy only making a point, only throwing up a sign, if you will, on Facebook or whatever, or screaming really loud at Easter dinner about everything that's wrong with the culture, Right? And everything that's there, we just are really happy making a point. But you got to ask yourself a question. Do you want to make a point or do you want to be like Jesus and make a difference? Because there's a big difference between the two, between just wanting to make a point and wanting to make a difference. Those who make a difference are those who live into their profession and proclaim their profession, don't just proclaim it. That's the idea of being promoters of this gospel that we speak of now we got to understand there's two ways in which the world can conform us into our image and therefore suck of us conviction one there's more than two ways but i'm going to say it this way one is beginning to call compromise love and the other is calling hate truth so there are these moments where people say we follow jesus god who's love And in the end, in seeking out love, they compromise the very Christ and his word that they say they're representing. That's not an option. The other one is people who say, I'm standing for truth, and yet what they're displaying is hate. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Tons of the deep-seated dislikes and hatred and horrible rhetoric that's out in our culture is in the church. Folks, that's where we have to say, God, may it never be. And if it's true that we've compromised, compromised our conviction that Jesus is Lord and called it love, may we repent. That's what we're now calling evil good and good evil. Or if we sat there and go, we're standing for truth, but in fact, it's hate. We need to repent because we stand convicted in the fact that Jesus is Lord and we must follow in his way. Now, here's the issue. Do your convictions lead you to civility? And I would say fundamentally, when Jesus is Lord, it's not just conviction, it's conviction with civility. So when Mao says the real challenge is to come up with a convicted civility, I would say the best way to do that is put Jesus front and center and say, believe and follow him because he was the essence of conviction and civility. You don't believe me? Let's talk about civility. First Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, we said this before, we've got to constantly be slowing down and going, what's right in this moment? What's right in this moment defined by Jesus? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed, not you will be thrilled or you will be pleased, or you'll experience comfort, or you'll even necessarily be happy. You will be blessed, though. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's our conviction. Jesus is Lord. Then he says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Now, that passage right there means two things. One, the only way People are gonna ask you questions about the hope that's within within you is if you are amongst them. You are with them. Right? You know them. So Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor. So a great challenge would be right away to say, hey, maybe I just take neighbor. Literally for this moment, even though Jesus says it's anybody that's around me, maybe the people that live around me, whether I live in an apartment or I live in a house or I live in a trailer or whatever I might live in, that in the end, who are the people that are around me and I just set out to know their names? That's it. I have a friend of mine who took up this challenge and he said he was so like sweating, not because he so much struggled getting to know somebody, but he's like, this person has told me their name like 350 times. So I'm going to walk over and go hey, um, I'm trying to live into this thing that Jesus is my Lord and he tells me to love my neighbor and I need to know you and I don't even remember your name. So he goes over and he tells the guy, hey, here's the deal. This is what's going on. I feel like I need to ask you your name and get to know you more. So what's your name? I know you've told me this 350 times. What's your name? And the guy looks right back at him and starts laughing. He goes, honestly, man, I don't remember yours either. And he's like, it's this huge moment to go, people struggle with what people struggle with, but we've got to get to know people, not just know them, they have to become our friends. Not just become our friends, but we got to love them at sacrifice to ourselves. That's the way Jesus talks about this. So you can't have people ever ask you a question about the hope that's within you unless they've been around you long enough to know that you have hope within you, which means the second thing. No one will ever ask you questions if you are not living a life that's worthy of asking questions of if you've so if we have been so conformed into the mold of this world that we're like everybody else we don't display hope we're not shining the gospel so you've got to both be there and be living a life that's worthy of the gospel even in your failures of saying Jesus is the savior but that you're living that way he then says this And you must do it, how do we do it? Here's the civility, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, with gentleness and respect. So this isn't the moment of, I just stand for truth and I'm a total jerk, but I'm living for my convictions. No, your conviction that Jesus is Lord, the conviction drives you to be civil, With gentleness and respect, with a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Colossians 4 says it a very similar way. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Sometimes be gracious? Right, right now, you should start thinking about your family dinners, your neighborhood gatherings, your social media posts. Like, Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Why? Because we're the salt of the earth. So that you may know how to answer each person. They're people, okay? They're people, they're real human beings with real struggles, with real needs that we're called to really meet. And you start that by treating them and speaking to them like a human being which doesn't mean compromising your convictions, but it means by treating them like a human being. We need a convicted civility. We never, ever, ever compromise our convictions. We don't compromise the truth because our conviction is Jesus and he's the one who allows us and propels us to live civilly, graciously, and compassionately. So we present the gospel through promoting it and through proclaiming it. The church is also not just the primary promoter, but the primary proclaimer of the gospel. The gospel is news that must be proclaimed. Think about it this way. It is utter foolishness for me to say, I'm going to be a dad who only displays to my kids how to live. I'm never going to tell them anything. How how good would that work? Like, how good does that work when they're three? Like, hey, that's hot. That's hot. Don't run in the street. A Mack truck will smush you, right? Like, stop, right? It, It just does, that's foolishness. It's just as foolish to presume that we would be a people who just display it and they're gonna get it. You've gotta go, tell them what the hope that is that lies within you. It's Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the world, whom you were made by and for. This God, Paul says when he's at Athens, whom you call unknown, let me tell you who he is. You say it because they'll never get it, but also because there's power in the word. Paul says in Romans 10, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says... Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, here's the statement. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Now, this may freak you out. Let me give you a little reality here. This doesn't mean that you divulge to someone in one lunch a full theological textbook. It doesn't even mean that you have to tell them the A to Z of the gospel. For the gospel is massive. What it does mean is just talk about Jesus Early and often, make Jesus a part of your everyday conversation. You may go, I know nothing. Well, you can be like the man born blind. I don't know much, but I know I was blind and now I see. Right? It can be that easy. I'm just amazed by the love of Jesus. You read one story in the Gospels and you go, man, I read this thing about Jesus today. It was crazy. It's unbelievable how insane this guy was. Right? And you just talk about about Jesus early and often it's honestly that easy. As you begin to proclaim the good news about Jesus in your own life and what you've seen of him, God works. And faith comes from hearing in your own life and in the lives of people through the word of God. I want to end by telling you a story to show you how real this is. in. I wrestled with telling the story because on one level, I don't want you at all to think there's any part of this that's patting myself on the back. On the other part, I don't want you to see it so extreme that you can't do it. But I do want you to see a situation which far too many of us would call extreme when in reality it's not. But call extreme to show you that this convicted civility works. So in the past few years, I've had the opportunity to really get to know... Um, a good amount of Muslims, and a lot of them are Muslim leaders. So like my equivalent, I'm a pastor, they're an imam. An imam is a Muslim pastor, if you will, or they call them sheikhs. And I've gotten to know these guys. One of the the men I came to know who's a a dear friend whom I respect greatly is a man named Osama uh, Bahul, who is out of just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. His mosque had been being vandalized and whatever. We were in a small room of about 15 people, half Christians and half Muslims. Um, There was one guy who was half Christian and Muslim. I'm kidding, but um, (laughs) I said 15 half, but about half and half. And the meeting starts off with a guy who's been a mentor from afar with me. And we're sitting in the room talking and the, the title of it was Evangelicals and Muslim Leaders. And he starts off and he says this, you think we're going to hell. We think you're going to hell. Now, how do we get along? And I was like, this is my kind of party, like, I love this, and the reason is, is a lot of times you get invited into these interfaith gatherings, where they go, what's the lowest common denominator, and basically you walk out, and everybody's going, we're all the same, and I'm like, no, we're not, like, I'm not Jewish, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, like, I believe he's Lord and Savior, I'm not a Muslim, like, they believe elevating a man to the place of God is blasphemy, I believe it's salvation, right, they don't believe that he died for our sins, like, I, I'm not that. I'm not an atheist. I believe in God and I believe in Jesus Christ. Who he said, like, what is? It? So I love the fact that we were putting up front. Which I'm telling you, folks, I've done this in individual relationships multiple times. You can do it. You can sit with someone and go, you know what? I don't agree with you. Like, and in fact, I think Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but at the name of Jesus. And go and I wanna be your friend. Like, how's your family? How are things going? I'm praying for you. I'm doing, you know, you can do it. So Osama and I sit up till like one night and I say to him, hey, tell me about my eternal destiny based on what you believe. And you could see his eyes like, you're going right for the jugular, right? But bottom line is, here's what he says to me. You've elevated a man to the place of God, that's blasphemy. And secondly, he stands up and he starts rubbing his shirt and he goes, I can't clean my shirt and then say your shirt is clean. By which he was saying that you believe that you can stand in Christ, in his righteousness, that he takes your sin, the punishment for your sin, and grants you the righteousness by being in him, and you now walk away righteous. He's like, that's insane. And I go, this is really interesting, Osama, because the fundamental things that you say are sending me to hell, I believe that you, by rejecting, are giving you the eternal consequences of the same. Like, isn't that unbelievable? So we leave, and I leave that night, and I think, God, that was amazing, and yet at the same time, I'm broken by like, this guy can articulate the gospel probably better than a third of the people in Redemption Church, like point by point, what the gospel is, and yet he doesn't believe it at all. And I'm thinking like, is is me just saying it, and saying it, and saying it, can it do anything? And I remember that night, God just made it apparently clear to me to say, Tyler, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Yesterday, I get a text message from a buddy of mine that says to me, I want to give you the best God story maybe you've heard in a really long time. I go, okay. There's a Muslim refugee that our churches have been spending time with, as well as uh, some companion churches even more so, with this uh, Muslim refugee that they met out one night. They have brought him in, and they have begun to just love him, provide community that he doesn't have. When he doesn't have money, they provided him a car. When he didn't have a place to live, people opened their home and he stayed with them for weeks and weeks on end. He didn't know how to learn English, they taught him English. And they began to teach him all these things. And week after week went by, he's a Muslim, he doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't believe in Jesus. By the way, we have multiple people in this front on multiple belief systems. Doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't believe in Jesus. Um, because of the hardships he'd been going through and then his sin, I wanna be really clear, he falls into a meth addiction. This community of Christians comes around him as they're promoting the gospel, all the while they're saying to him, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus saves. They help him get into a rehab facility. He goes into a rehab facility three weeks ago. He calls one of my friends, part of the Christian community, and he goes, you will not believe what just happened to me last night. What happened? I had a dream. What was the dream? Jesus appeared to me in the dream. Jesus said that I'm the Lord and Savior, and I'm the only one that's gonna get you out of this mess. And he goes, it was so palatably real, I know God revealed himself in Jesus to me through this dream. He wakes up, says he falls upon his knees, and he said, for the first time in my life, I said, Jesus is Lord. Now, if you don't know this, Romans 10 says, those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord will be saved. Okay, it is a magic deal. He, it's belief in your heart. He believed it. He confessed it at that moment. A couple weeks after that, he's at his citizenship hearing. Citizenship fearing has a hundred, couple hundred people in the midst of it. They allow like five or under people that are gaining their citizenship to talk. He gets chosen. He stands up and here's what he says. I was a shepherd in my previous country, but it took God moving me to the United States to learn that Jesus is the good shepherd and the Lord of the world. So folks, think about this. God appoints a Muslim refugee to show up in our backyard to preach the gospel to a whole bunch of other nations through the church promoting and proclaiming the gospel. He pronounces it to a bunch of people to which he's pronouncing it also in that room to senators in Congress, men and women who are coming up to him afterwards going, your story was absolutely unbelievable. You know, the Bible says that God appoints the boundaries and times in which we live so that people might seek and find God. It isn't just through us. He might be bringing people from the nations to our very cities, and yet we are living in a time where people are calling, keep America great again. By pushing all of these people out, and I would submit to you, maybe the way God's gonna make America great again is by the church repenting of our self-righteousness, of our foolishness, and following Jesus as Lord that causes us to care for the least of these in such a way that they may turn up and be the next evangelists. that call the world to surrender their knee to the one who in the only one who can make any one of us, any family, any community, any nation great again is because God and God alone is great. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and mercy. God, give to us your grace. Let us truly follow Jesus. If anything else in our lives is front and center, like the song that we say: make you our one thing. Define and show us what is right and good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.